Hey there, theater lovers. It's Bryn. I'm very excited to talk to you today about one of the most prolific female experimental playwrights of the 20th century, Maria Irene Fornes. It's a little bit of a deviation from the types of plays I normally talk about on this podcast, but when you meet our guest, you'll know why I had to talk about this play with y'all. But before we get into all that, here are this week's announcements. Another Waterhouse Collective digital play drops tonight. In fact, it is the final one of the festival. It's called Barren Earth by Alex Moon, and it's sure to be a wild ride. With puppetry by Caitlin Brzezinski and directed by Mary Moriarty, it's sure to be visually stunning as well as aurally. You can view the show on Waterhouse Collective's website at 7 p.m. This is a free show, but there is a suggested donation of $10. Yet another event premiering tonight. The Barrow Group is hosting an online First Friday event in which works in progress by Asian writers will be read. If you'd like to be considered for on-the-spot casting, join the call at 6 p.m. EST. If you would just like to watch, the readings begin at 6.30 p.m. Reserve your tickets at barrowgroup.org. This event is free. La Mama Experimental Theatre Company is having an online event on October 6th at 7 p.m. EST called Design Fest. This is an online theatre design festival to celebrate and support emerging theatre designers. You can find ticket information on La Mama's website. As far as I can tell, this event is also free. The Atlantic Theatre Company is hosting free online hour-long acting workshops every Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. EST. This upcoming workshop on October 6th is on August Wilson and the Atlantic Technique. You can register on the Atlantic Theatre Company's website. The Public Theatre is putting out a documentary film called Under the Greenwood Tree, all about their 2017 Public Works musical production of As You Like It, which was performed by 200 New Yorkers of all ages and boroughs. It premieres on October 7th at 8 p.m. EST. You can watch, I believe for free, on allarts.org. And finally, if you enjoy this podcast, but are also looking to listen to something that explores more classic plays, why don't you try out Braving the Bard? In this podcast, the hosts and guests help you conquer Shakespeare one play at a time. It's smart, funny, and informative as hell, and hosted by a former acting teacher of mine. I highly recommend giving it a listen on Spotify. No announcements this week pertaining to me or past guests, so that's all for today. And with that, it's time to begin our exploration of Maria Irene Fornes' play, Fefu and Her Friends. Maria Irene Fornes was born in Havana, Cuba in 1930. She moved to the U.S. with her mother after her father's death. Maria was a naturalized citizen by 1951. However, she quickly left for Paris, where she studied to become a painter. If you've been in a drama or theater class, you've probably been made to read Waiting for Godot a thousand times. Well, Maria saw a production of Godot in Paris, one of the original productions, and it inspired her to become a playwright instead of a painter. When she returned to the U.S., she worked as a textile engineer while writing her plays. Her first professionally staged play, The Widow, was put up in 1961, 
10 years after she had become a U.S. citizen. Fefu and Her Friends was written and produced in 1977 in New York City. It won an Obie Award that same year. This work is one of Fornese's later ones, written after she had already made a pretty decent name for herself in New York City. Here's a short summary of the piece. This play takes place in 1935 at Fefu's Country House. Her seven friends are coming over for a meeting to discuss and rehearse their presentation for their charity. What happens next takes place over the course of one day, beginning at noon and ending in the evening, and climaxing with a murder scene. Individual scenes throughout the play highlight each woman's struggles, traumas, and thoughts on her life. As it is put on the Wikipedia page for this play, Fefu and her friends illustrates how most women who struggle to escape the confine of a woman's stereotypical role in society tend to believe that the only way to do so is to control her surroundings and those close to her. Other notable facts about this work. It features an all-female cast, which was almost completely unheard of in the 70s. It also marked Fornese's first experimentation with deconstructing the stage. That is, setting scenes in different places around the theater that the audience would have to walk to. What's really cool about this is that these scenes all happened simultaneously, and the audience is divided into groups that cycle around to each scene. This means that each audience group sees the scenes in a different order, and therefore gets a slightly different version of the story. Now, what about the year 1977? How did this play perhaps comment on the times, or was influenced by them? Two, two of the characters in Fefu, Paula and Cecilia, are openly queer. This is huge for a play written in 77 and taking place in 35, because the year 77 marked many gay rights protests and subsequent anti-protests. A, frankly, horrible woman named Anita Bryant was the instigator of the anti-gay Save Our Children crusade, which resulted in a county or two in Florida voting to repeal gay rights legislation, as well as a huge retaliation protest in San Francisco. Not only was being gay still a pretty unaccepted thing in society in 77, but Fornes wrote a queer female character, something even more foreign to audiences than a queer male. On top of all this, Fornes was queer herself and likely kept a keen eye on both anti and pro gay rights activism. The Cold War was also still ongoing in 77. Fafu has a major theme of control and how women often used to lack true control over their lives due to their femininity. This struggle for control within one life could be extrapolated to comment on the struggle for control of the geopolitical scene between the US and Russia. I hope that that's given you some context for this amazing play. Now, a reading from the play. Part two, In the Lawn by Heather McConnell as Fefu, right after this ad read. And now, the monologue from part two in the lawn, read by Heather McConnell as Fefu. I thank you. I'm in constant pain. I don't want to give into it. If I do, I'm afraid I will never recover. It's not physical and it's not sorrow. It's very strange, Emma. I can't describe it and it's very frightening. 
it is as if normally there's a lubricant. Not in the body, a spiritual lubricant. It's hard to describe. And without it, life is a nightmare and everything is distorted. A black cat started coming to my kitchen. He's awfully mangled and big. He's missing an eye and his skin is diseased. At first I was repelled by him, but then I thought, this is a monster that has been sent to me and I must feed him. And I fed him. One day he came and shat all over my kitchen. Foul diarrhea. He still comes and I still feed him. I'm afraid of him. How about a little lemonade? Wow, wasn't that reading captivating? As you all know by now, I adore Heather's work. Her professional details are in the show notes of this episode if anyone would like to contact her. Now, here to talk to us about the finer details of this play is today's special guest, theater maker, puppeteer, choreographer, retired teacher, and more, Daniel Herlin. His most recent piece was a puppet piece called Demolishing Everything with Amazing Speed, and he's currently working on a new puppet piece entitled Bismarck. When he was an undergraduate, he was involved in the original production of Fefu as the assistant stage manager, or as he told me earlier, uh, Fornes likes to call him the token male, <laughs> which I find very funny. Uh, Good. How are you doing Good. today, Thanks, Dan? Ben. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I know this pandemic has been hitting us all very differently, but I am glad to see that you're still working on some really cool puppet works over there in Pennsylvania. Well, I'm trying. I'm work in, in the middle of renovating what was a six-car garage and turning it into a studio. So I'm not working on the puppets yet. I'm still working <laughs> on the studio. Well, one step in the right direction, right? That's right. I know That's right. I'm... I, I would love to have a space like that. Uh, I think a lot of us would. Um, <laughs> but right now, we do what we can do in this pandemic. That's right. And, yes. And, and mine, is this, yes, mine, <laughs> mine is this podcast. And I'm really glad that you could join us today uh, to talk about this play. Because yeah. um, I really like it a lot. I know I first saw it in undergrad. Um, and then I heard a lot of talk about it when I came to Sarah Lawrence, uh, where we met uh, mm -hmm. for my master's degree. Uh, a lot of people at Sarah Lawrence are very into her work. Uh, and I believe she was uh, involved in uh, Sarah Lawrence uh, a little bit uh, back back when in uh, what the 80s or the, uh, the mm -hmm. 70s around there. Uh, could have been. Uh, it was if she was involved in, with Sarah Lawrence, it was before my time. But I know that she had connections to a lot of people who were uh, at Sarah Lawrence as faculty. Yeah. And there's a big poster of Fefu and her friends right in the lobby of the theater building. Uh -huh. uh, it's one of the first things I saw when I walked in, um, which was kind of comforting for me to be like, oh, cool. So I do know something of what's going on here. I do know <laughs> what's going on a little bit. Um, and I really like this play because I think it uh, has a lot to say. Um, and I wanted to know personally, what do you think uh, the main thematic content of this play is? What do you think it's saying? Oh, uh, jeepers. <laughs> uh, Start with the big ones. Well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's pretty complex. I don't think, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm sort of hard pressed to say, this is what the theme is, or this is what it's about. It's very, mm -hmm. like a lot of Irene's work, I think it's 
it's it can be open ended and it can be um um sort of that that kind of surrealism that makes you question um everything <laughs> yeah and that's one of the reasons i know i was drawn to it as well and why a lot of people are the complexities yeah 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 i mean it's definitely you know it's definitely a feminist anthem and for that it's you know it's worth its weight in gold it's it's pretty brilliant I know in particular, um, I was really drawn uh, both as an audience member and a playwright to part two of this play where the scenes sort of come out of the stage and uh, the audience is led around to different places within the theater to view the scenes uh, in different orders, depending on what group they're in. Yeah. And moving the audience around like that now, it has a name and it's a really interesting the name that they've, you know, that they've given this kind of theater is promenade theater, which I think is really interesting because, you know, uh, years before she wrote Fafuna Friends, she wrote a musical called Promenade. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, my goodness. I didn't think of that connection, but you're right. I know I, I really like that part because it seems to uh, give almost each audience member a different viewpoint on the characters and uh, how things are progressing between them and within the plot. What about that portion of the work is so nuanced? What, what about it reinforces, do you think it reinforces the meaning of the play or the potential meanings of the play that the audience could glean? Well, I think that, you know, for my money, what is the most interesting about the second part is is formal is the formality of it, the formal conceit of having the promenade in the middle, and having the audience being able to uh, listen to the different women in in a different order. But it's also it's more than that. It's also what she's done. What I love is the way that the um, the way that the scenes kind of intersect, you know, I think, isn't there, there's one, uh, forgive me, it's been a long time since I've read it, but isn't there one scene where somebody leaves one of the rooms and pokes her head into the kitchen at some point? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. So the, the and then if you're, when you're in the library, you see that character leave the library to go talk to somebody who's in the kitchen. So there's this sort of interconnectivity that is a little bit like a Rubik's cube that is completely fascinating to me. Um, but it, but it's mostly it's the um, it's the structural, the formality, mm-hmm. that that formal element that I find so compelling. Yes, uh, and speaking of all the complexities of both the formality and uh, the thematic content, I I personally when I read this uh, for. Uh, the third or fourth time when I was writing uh, the dramaturgy part of this podcast, I was struck by um, kind of, like you said, it's a Rubik's cube. It's almost like a puzzle, how those Mm. scenes in part two can fit together, but they make a different picture and they can fit differently with different thematic uh, ideas, depending on who you are as an audience member or an actor or director. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think it is a puzzle. I think it is, you know, these sort of the way that the scenes kind of interlock like a like a jigsaw puzzle. It's kind of um, well, it's it's totally brilliant. And, you know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but 
Um, I remember when we were working on it back in <laughs> 1834. Um, I and I could be wrong about this. This this, this might be uh, not correct information, but my memory of it is that she had um, she had actually structured the play to fit the space that she found. Oh, like that the, the play was the play was you know she had written kind of a normal play, and then when she went to the space that we were going to perform it in. It was called the synchronicity space. I think it was called on lower Broadway. And it had a, you know, you go upstairs as you would in those days. Hmm. <laughs> and there, there was a theater, a little theater space in there, but then she realized that there was also a kitchen and that there was this library and that there was uh, another room that could be turned into the bedroom and that was that it was the space that gave her the idea for the promenade. It was not the other way around. Now, I could be wrong about that, but that was my that's my memory of it. That's really interesting. Uh, I really like it when a playwright and a space kind of have that conversation. And it's interesting to see that uh, she had that conversation with that particular space. Kind of interesting that it was called synchronicity then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was called synchronicity space, and it, and as and again, my my memory could be failing me, but uh, I think that the people who ran synchronicity, I think that the people who ran the theater also lived there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a very seventies thing to me, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember my first uh, when when I first went into this space, and she sort of uh, announced that that this was sort of what she was going to do. I, I was so young and so inexperienced and, you know, just from New Hampshire, really. <laughs> and um, I, I just thought it was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. I was like, oh, well, this isn't going to work at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, wow, magic. It did. <laughs> it, it, it did, like, totally. I mean, it was totally incredible. <laughs> and I know one of the characters uh, that features prominently in part two uh, is Julia, and she particularly interests me because she's uh, an ambulatory wheelchair user and has mm. a traumatic brain injury. Um, mm -hmm. I was interested uh, to know if uh, you had any information regarding uh, that character and how they were viewed by the cast and team on your production. Um, I don't. I remember that the woman who played uh, Julia, I don't remember... All, all of those original actors. I, I know Rebecca Schull played Fefu, and and the only other one that I really remember is her. Uh, I think her name was Margaret Margaret Harrington, and she was just uh, she was a completely lovely person and very um, uh, a very gentle soul. Uh, that's my recollection of her. I really I really liked her. How she ended up being cast in that role, I have no idea. <laughs> I came on, I think I came on after, well, I'm not quite sure where in the process I came on. I, I know that, I, um, that by the time I came on, the, the piece had been cast. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like so. uh, from at least my perspective that she was a perfect fit for Julia. <laughs> she was, she was really extraordinary. I mean, I, there was, okay, so as, I was the assistant stage manager. Yeah. And one thing that I had to do was I 
was, I mean, aside from all of my duties, whatever they were during rehearsal, Mm -hmm. during the performances, my job was to sit in the kitchen uh, with the two actors who were doing that scene. Mm -hmm. And I had to, uh, after, after the first audience group left, I had to reset the kitchen really fast. Oh. <laughs> and then, you know, then the next group would come in and I would sit there. So I watched that kitchen scene over and over and over again. Holly had it as memorized as the actors did. Oh, absolutely I did. And I had the actors, um, I remember having the actors' um, uh, mannerisms memorized oh, as well. Everything um, down to the gesture. And I remember that... Uh, very close to the end of the run, somehow they managed to find a replacement for me for one performance. Mm-hmm. So there was one performance that I was allowed to actually go and see what the hell was going on in oh, all of the other spaces. That's cool. And I remember being so blown away and completely mystified, uh, but at the same time, uh, for me, seeing Julia's monologue um, it was sort of like, oh, it was like the keystone that had been missing for me. It was the one thing that made the whole thing clear, which is amazing because it's so abstract. And, yeah. You know, you don't quite know what's going on. But yeah, but but her her state was uh, it, it, my memory of it is. And again, you know, I said my memory is really fading, but um, the my memory of it is, is that that one scene made everything coalesce. Yeah. I remember when I saw it as well, that was, uh, that's still a scene that I have in my memory, how they staged it, uh, who was playing Julia and uh, her tone when she performed, because it's, it's such a, it's hard to find the right word to describe that section of the piece i think because it's it's you're right it does coalesce everything together but in a surrealist i guess is a good word and yeah or i would i would i would use the word hallucinatory hallucinatory, you know i mean you know she's hallucinating and um it's pretty incredible um i she she's talking also doesn't she talk a lot about guardians yeah she talks a lot about yeah and um Closing night, uh, Irene gave everybody a little gift, and um, the gift she gave everybody a, a what she called a, a guardian. So she gave me a little, um, a beautiful little pendant um, that I wore around my neck for years. Uh, that I think it's a, it looks like it's a, some kind of a, a Tibetan something or another. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's my little guardian from Irene. That's really sweet because um, I was about to ask uh, what was it like working with her and knowing her uh, as a collaborator sort of? Um, I think probably I didn't have a great uh, vantage point. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, I think um, from where I was sitting and from my memory of my experience, she was completely delightful and um and open and funny and and welcoming. I don't know if she, I don't know, I'm not sure the actors would ever say the same. <laughs> um, I, I could be wrong about that too. Um, I, I've heard little rumors or something, but from where I was sitting, you know, it, it also could very well be 
that I was so young that I was just so thrilled that someone of her stature, you know, you know, saw me or recognized me or, or, you know, allowed me in or something. But I remember, you know, going to her apartment a couple of times and she was very, um, she's just always very open and charming and, and lovely. Oh, that's nice to hear. I like it. I like hearing when, uh, these brilliant playwrights are also nice, just people in general. <laughs> yeah, uh, from from where I was sitting, it, she was really terrific. Now I have heard that mm-hmm. she can be a demand, or that she could be a demanding director, but uh, but now I, I don't even remember where I heard that from. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that could be false too. <laughs> oh, and lastly, I wanted to talk to you. Uh, just about kind of your personal connection to this play and why why should people still read it and uh, put it up today? Uh, why is it still significant? Well, uh, <laughs> is, uh, is the fight for uh, women's equality still going on? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just think it's, you know, it just, it's, a hugely important uh, touchstone uh, in really in the feminist movement, I think. And um, I think it's remarkable. And I also, I also think that her, um, that sense of surrealism that we were talking about is still something that is so, um, that it's just not mainstream, you know, it's just not, like not everybody, hardly anybody. Yeah. Nobody is writing like that, you know. Nobody is writing like that. I mean, she. I. I think that there are some people who are, um, who might be considered to be her, um, the next generation, mm-hmm. like uh, Medalia Cruz, for instance. Um, but um, but I think she's Irene was like an, an incredibly unique voice. Uh, at a time when, well, actually, I mean, no, she started working in the, you know, in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and she started working with um, kind of the avant-garde and Cafe Chino and La Mama and all of those places. And so she was sort of steeped in, a, in, in experimental theater, you know, from the get-go, as far as I know. Um, but I don't, I still don't think no one is as, assured as she was Hmm. yeah i can i think i can definitely see that when uh i reread the play for uh the last time before uh our interview today uh her voice is very unique and and has a Hmm. clarity that i don't think i have found in many other playwrights even when you know it's uh even in in some of her plays, when you you have no idea what's going on, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, I'm thinking about the Danube, which mm-hmm. is a really weird play, um, and Mud, which is really 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 strong and really a horrific play. Yeah. Um, but I but she's always it, it's almost like okay, this is going to sound really dumb, but <laughs> it's almost like. You know how puppets aren't victims of gravity and they're not victims of, they don't necessarily need to, they don't need to play by the same um, 
physical rules that we all do because they can fly and they can come apart. Yeah. I sort of feel like Irene is in that category. I don't, <laughs> I, I sort of feel like the normal things that keep all of us grounded, they don't apply to her. Huh. I like that analogy with puppets as uh, I also, <laughs> I also like to experiment with puppets here and there, <laughs> as I'm sure you remember. <laughs> Uh, well, Dan, this has been so awesome. Thank you so much for agreeing to join me today and talk about uh, this amazing playwright and work. I think you gave the listeners some really great insight into this play, and I hope you've we've encouraged them to read it for themselves or once things are open again, God willing, <laughs> to go see it. Uh, Dan, where can people find you and your work if they want to check it out? Oh, well, I have a website, danherlin.com or danherlin.org. I have both of those, uh, but it's the same website. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I don't really, I don't have anything yet planned. I mean, I'm still working on uh, Bismarck Mm -hmm. and um, I have nibbles on it and I've I've got puppets, but that's as far as I've got. (laughs) (laughs) But it'll be, you know, if if you you know, check out my website. I'm sure you'll be able to, I, I'll be keeping up, up that up to date That's so you can awesome. find it when it's ready to go. And I highly suggest checking out his uh, puppetry. It's uh, honestly, it's fantastic. And I think a lot of you listeners out there would enjoy uh, watching it, especially now when we can't really go out and see anything live. Uh, I think it's a good, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good substitute for not being able to get out there as some of these great videos that artists have been putting out. And if I recall, Dan, you have quite a few good ones out there. So I recommend. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Yeah. There's, there's, there's pl- stuff to see. <laughs> Well, thank you again, and thank all of you out there for listening. That's all for this episode. And if you want to contact me with suggestions for plays or guests for the podcast in the future, or just to say hi, you can email me at theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. No hyphen. That's theplaymatespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the podcast on Instagram at, at playmatespodcast. That's at Playmates Podcast. I've had such a great time with all of you today. Be sure to join us next week where I'll be talking about Ripe Frenzy by Jennifer Barclay. Have a safe and fulfilling week. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.